0: Welcome to CV Now, a new podcast from Houston Methodist DeBakey CV Education. Each week we'll be introducing you to innovators and pioneers in cardiovascular medicine with interviews of the experts by the experts. I'm your host, George Tripsis. DeBakey CV Education is your source of the -the state-of-the-art cardiovascular education. We are based out of Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center in the heart of the Texas Medical Center. Building on the legacy of our namesake, the renowned cardiovascular surgeon, Dr. Michael DeBakey. DeBakey CV Education is dedicated to creating globally accessible, comprehensive cardiovascular education for health professionals at every level. For those of you who can't make it to Houston for all our hands-on events, we bring the training to you with our live stream conferences, our vast YouTube library, and now this podcast.
1: I think that... Guidelines and evidence um, are pointing to the fact that AFib is almost just one of many risk factors for stroke. The others are the CHADS
0: vascular. This week, we're discussing technological innovations that have the potential to revolutionize the cardiovascular field. The next two interviews will feature experts in translational medicine. One is working on new mapping techniques for AFib, and the other is training a generation of surgeon innovators. First up, Drs. William Zagby and Sanjeev Narayan will discuss opportunities and implications of technologies to detect AFib. They will also discuss how those technologies can be integrated into an individualized approach to minimize the risk of stroke. Dr. Zagby is the chair of the Department of Cardiology at the Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center and a past president of the American College of Cardiology. Dr. Narayan is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and the co-founder of the Stanford Arrhythmia Center. His research focuses on mechanisms for atrial fibrillation and ventricular arrhythmias. His discoveries have led to the development of innovative AFib mapping techniques using computer analysis to overcome the limitations of current imaging modalities. Now let's get into it.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Bill Zogby. I'm the chair of the Department of Cardiology here at Houston Methodist Hospital, the Baker Heart and Vascular Center. With me is a pleasure to have uh, Dr. Sanjeev Narayan, he is the Professor of Medicine at Stanford University and the Co-Director of the Arrhythmia Center there. It's a pleasure to have you here and thank you really for a wonderful Grand Rounds this morning. Thank
1: you, Dr. Zogby. It's really been wonderful to be here.
2: Uh, what I really enjoyed about this Grand Rounds, and obviously we want our viewers to take a look at it, is uh, not only from th- is addressing atrial fibrillation from so many aspects. <laughs> from its diagnosis pathophysiology, some of the current challenges in a case-based approach, and uh, hopefully some of the aspirations for the future is going forward. Even some of the intrigue to me was that we still can't diagnose it too well, even <laughs> by, by a, a surface electrocardiogram. And the, ele- the cardiologists have not done as well either <laughs> <laughs> in, in that uh, uh, evaluation. So the question to you is obviously uh, the concern here is not necessarily only the symptoms of the patients, which you know quite a few times we can address one way or another. But the risk, the risk of stroke, and, uh, and how do we mitigate that? How do we decrease it? I have a question for you, and I, I've been hassling with it a bit. Is nowadays with newer technologies and uh, You know, those technologies have improved so much to be able to monitor the rhythm of an individual. And I can see in the future, in the near future, somebody being able to be monitored almost continuously in addition to hemodynamics and everything else. Yes. If we have this technology, how much of a dent is it gonna make in our therapeutics? Meaning, if if I know an individual is in sinus rhythm yet they're at risk of a stroke uh, am i looking at it correctly meaning i'm looking at a fib as a almost a symptom mm. in a disease milieu <laughs> and if i stop that symptomatology if i improve it electrically etc i'm still left with everything else that's with it is this yeah, am I in the right direction?
1: I think you're definitely in the right direction and I think that's a forward-looking statement. I think that guidelines and evidence um, are pointing to the fact that AFib is almost just one of many risk factors for stroke. The others are the CHADS-VAS score. Some people have already proposed in editorials and a few single center and retrospective studies that it should really be a CHADS-VASc AF score where your risk for stroke is Heart failure, et cetera, with some number of points for AFib, because we know that people can have who have um, a moderately high chads vas score are at risk for thromboembolism even without AFib. So, therefore, to speak to your, you know, the point you made about wearables and detection, I think that will make an enormous dent in our therapy, almost a dent that we're not prepared to take at the moment. We're not prepared to be able to handle. Because if you imagine for instance um, everybody with a smartphone or let's say an Apple watch I see you've got one of those yeah. on so you know actually measuring their heart rate and having flash alerts of atrial fibrillation uh, then that would serve as a trigger to start looking for other risk factors and people that never thought they needed to be could now be on anticoagulation that substantially changes the way that they might participate in sports and and so on and so forth so I think it's absolutely correct but also it's a massive healthcare undertaking
2: i'm just wondering also on the other side of atrial fibrillation is if we take a fib out of the equation and we have a score of heart failure hypertension so many other things mm. because at times we may not be able to detect atrial fibrillation yeah the question is, what is the risk of stroke in that population? Because that, that could be one factor, but it may be a very important factor by itself. I'm just wondering, yep. uh, you know, th- from the reduction of stroke events down the line. No, I
1: think you're right. I think that there will be a group of people who don't have AFib despite monitoring, whose CHADS-VASc sc- um, score is, let's say, pick a number five, and they do have a substantial risk for stroke. It may not be the 7% or 8% you'd expect for that patient if they had a fib and a score of five, but I think it'll
2: be substantial and probably worthy of therapy. What do you think, looking into the future for the next five years, uh, what do you think uh, are maybe the newer frontiers in atrial fibrillation that either being tackled or should we tackle the next five years to try to either understand it better, treat it better, or whichever way, I mean, you think about. Um, obviously, you're a thought leader in a February. Thank
1: you, so I think that uh, identifying a personalized risk score for stroke, which really gets that personalized mechanisms for stroke, would be number one, because it's urgent, it's a really critical issue that we have to address straight away. I think the next would be some way of identifying uh, whether lifestyle changes are more useful in some patients than uh, others, and are some lifestyle changes more dramatic and more effective than others. Uh, And then I think a third one would be using those pieces of information to help inform our ways to treat and ablate AFib. But I do put that third because, of course, most patients with AFib don't get to ablation. Although, of course, it's what I do for most of my my job but most people however may be at risk for stroke and could change their lifestyle so I think those are the key elements let's say from the ACC's perspective
2: uh, I, I like I like this personalization because uh, to me I think uh, we've we've emphasized that appropriately uh, the the scoring mechanism that we have which is mostly clinical if you will right but there are other anatomic things and functional things that we really have not incorporated yet. And yet we do quite a bit of imaging, be mm-hmm. it with ultrasound, with mm-hmm. MRI at times. I mean, uh, you know, with the CMR, it's not gonna be that ubiquitous, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. But conceivably, individuals who either are getting a transesophageal or an echocardiogram mm-hmm. just wonder whether the shape, even, mm-hmm. of a left atrial appendage, mm-hmm because on the right side you have an appendage that may be wider shaped and, and less, con- less const- uh, constricted, if you will, yes. at, at the origin. Uh, just wonder whether a shape would be important, whether the velocities, be it by ultrasound or MRI, yep. would be important, uh, even in sinus rhythm, yep. uh, or atrial fibrillation tells you something about it. So, and maybe some other biological markers beyond, beyond what we know from a clinical point of view. So I, I like this approach about personalized medicine. Yeah. I think it's
1: very important, and I think, you know, an area that I, I personally like is computational models or network analysis to try and piece, piece together associations and individualize therapy in a way that otherwise we have a bit of a hard time you know doing as, as human beings. You know, there, there are associations now that we're going to get um, out of massive amounts of data that will be available. A lot of that will be noise, but if we're able to have clear phenotypes, so patients that we know have AFib, for instance, patients who unfortunately have other comorbidities that we know about, and then we can use ambulatory data from their watch or something sewn into their sweatshirt. I think that will
2: help us tremendously to be able to understand mechanisms and tailor therapy. Wonderful, I think this is an exciting field. Anything on the technological end that could be revolutionary the next few years be it the ablation portion or some other technologies? So uh, I'll leave ablation to the end. I think that
1: detection of AFib, those devices, will revolutionize the field. It seems pedestrian, but the same way that the availability of uniform time or the fact that we Uh, you know, can communicate so readily with each other was revolutionary, although we had phones for 50 years. I think the fact that everybody will know their rhythm, everybody will know some measure of you could (coughs) get cardiac output, I think that will be revolutionary. And just like we all have smartphones, many of us are going to have wearables moving forwards. Uh, I think imaging, uh, I don't know whether 3D echo, but some combination of functional characterization of the atrium will be key. Because at some level, stroke rate, almost, I mean, has to be related to Verkov's triads. You've got the tissue structure, you've got contractility is one that tells you stasis, you've got flow that tells you stasis, and then some rheological measurement from the blood that's probably easy to, to measure. We just may not know how to integrate it. I think that'll be key. Um, I think some surgical advances when patients are going concomitant surgery, I think currently the ablation approaches are based, in my opinion, on concepts from 20 years ago, and I think those could be improved. So you could have prophylactic surgery um, based on anyone undergoing you know, a stenotomy procedure for cabbage, for instance, or valve replacement. Uh, and then I think um, there could be a scope for integrating EP forms of therapy with transcatheter therapeutics, so Tavers um, or other forms of prosthesis. And finally, ablation. I think that there will, ablation is very tech heavy so there's many different things. Um, I think the focus personally on localized sources and trying to understand why they occur, where they occur, where they're anchored, how they relate to MR, I think that's a very exciting field moving forwards.
2: It really is very exciting. And just we were reminiscing you know, this morning as to when we trained and atrial fibrillation was just you know, a rhythm somewhere there that yes. people did not pay as bottom much of attention to. <laughs> bottom of the history list. Uh, it's it's amazing how much more emphasis more knowledge and actually more knowledge that indeed it was a major cause for morbidity and mortality absolutely it was not as much on the radar screen absolutely so it has been really a pleasure having you here at houston methodist and uh wish you the best uh, of luck and thank you for visiting us and we thank you for joining us for continuing your medical education and interacting with us on these channels thanks dr zobi thank you to the The group at Houston
1: Methodist. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
0: You've now heard how innovative new technologies, including wearables, could soon allow cardiologists to constantly monitor their patients' rhythm and radically change how they assess stroke risk. Next, we're going to take a step back even earlier in the bench-to-bedside chain, discussing opportunities to train the next generation of clinical innovators,
3: You know, life is problem solving. It's a team sport. Uh, Actually, life is about problem finding and problem solving. Sometimes we sort of uh, underemphasize the importance of problem finding.
0: Dr. Alan Lumsden, medical director of the Houston Methodist-Debeki Heart and Vascular Center, interviews Dr. Elliot Chaikov, chair of the Department of Surgery at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Lumpson and Dr. Tchaikov are vascular surgeons who share a passion for connecting clinicians and engineers to the innovate solutions to medical problems. Dr. Tchaikov will share his experiences with Harvard Medical School's spin program, which teaches surgical residents the process of technological innovation. And now, to the interview.
4: Elliot, first of all, thank you for a great grand rounds. My Absolutely pleasure. spectacular, and presented in a way that um, well, you have a gift for taking a complex and explaining it in a way that we can we can stay along with and get these concepts. So, but what I want to do now is really talk a little bit more about you. And so you and I worked together basically as fellows, and then we were at Emory But take take me your journey beyond Emory. Emory was a great place,
3: yeah.
4: um, and but since then, tell me what you've been doing.
3: Well. Um- you know, spent almost 20 years in Atlanta at Emory and Georgia Tech, and in 2010 came up to Boston, uh, where I uh, have been serving as chair of surgery at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Um, it's a very large department. Uh, we have over 80 clinical surgeons wow. mm-hmm. uh, employed within the department, as well as another 50 Ph.D. research faculty. So. Uh, in total somewhere on the order of 130 to 150 uh, members of the Harvard Medical School faculty. There are um, 13 uh, uh, divisions within the Department of Surgery. And and as a Canadian, I tell people it's uh, more of a confederation than it is of a union. Uh, it's a way of bringing a lot of programs together. But currently, the department continues to have neurosurgery, ophthalmology, ENT, urology, um, as all component members of sort of surgery, um, we also have uh, you know major focus on education and research in addition to to patient care, and so currently have about twenty six million dollars in research grants. Wow. Uh, we have a large clinical research program as well as translational research program, and have uh, about hundred residents and fellows. Uh, in uh, a number of different programs from general surgery to uh, advanced fellowships in plastic surgery, vascular surgery. So uh, it's a wonderful uh, vascular surgery group with uh, a long heritage of important contributions in vascular surgery and it's wonderful to be uh, a member and a partner in that group and to continue to be active in vascular surgery, Uh, but as you know in your current leadership position as well. It's, uh, it's interesting when you start to have uh, uh, challenges and opportunities outside of your home department of vascular surgery. You know, uh, a lot of life is sort of looking at problems through other people's lenses. Um, uh, you know, a lot of really interesting innovations that you've been a part of and others are really interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary. Uh, innovations laparoscopy was Mm -hmm. the collaboration between general surgeons and gynecologists you know the world of endovascular aneurysm repair was collaborations between interventional radiologists and vascular surgeons so it really is interesting you know as you've done throughout Mm -hmm. your career to really sort of see the experiments that a variety of different clinical uh, disciplines within and outside of surgery are participating in and then see opportunities where you sort of uh, uh, bring groups together.
4: Yeah, I mean, you've done a fantastic job and, and congratulations. But You span beyond just the surgical disciplines and that's really what I wanna pick your brain a little bit. I'm gonna tell you about a new uh, initiative here and we announced this idea of, it's called NMED, a new medical school concept, engineering medicine and this is being done in collaboration with Texas A&M. Uh, as you know, they're a huge engineering school and so beginning next year, all our MD-PhD students who have um, a degree in one of the engineering specialties are going to be tracked down to methods. So about 40 engineers going into medicine will be here. A lot of the the, uh, A&M faculty will be down here. And so we're beginning this journey of integrating a clinical operation with the guys who I think solve our problems and those are the engineers. And so You have lived that life. I mean, you're probably the best example in our specialty of someone who walks both sides of that platform. Just give me your thoughts on it and how we should evolve this. Maybe you should be an advisor of how (laughs) how this evolves.
3: No, I think that's a absolutely fantastic initiative. And you know, life is problem solving. It's a team sport. Uh, Actually, life is about problem finding and problem solving. Sometimes we sort of, uh, underemphasize the importance of problem finding, right? Mm-hmm. Because the problems are all around us, but it's easy to sort of go through life without your eyes wide open. Uh, helping engineers and non engineers in the field of medicine really identify problems and then sort of forming teams that are interdisciplinary. When everybody around the table comes from the same background, the solutions people arrive at are pretty predictable mm-hmm. and fairly mundane when people come from very different backgrounds that's sort of when the opportunity to close these ingenuity gaps arise. Um, so in our environment clearly um, there are a lot of great engineering programs you know, a- in Boston and there's been a long tradition of cross-collaboration between Harvard and MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of examples of those programs where I'm on the faculty are the Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. Uh, that was uh, an institute at Harvard that was founded by Hans-Jörg Weiss, who was the founder of Synthes. Uh, he's donated $250 million. That's an environment that's brought in uh, engineers, scientists, clinicians, uh, and actually uh, a large number of individuals who spent their career in industry, mm-hmm. understanding some of the challenges Because we tend to be in our own siloed environments and bringing that expertise back into the university, the focus of that institute is to dramatically accelerate um, translation out of the academic laboratories and into into the setting of patient care. So the focus there is on entrepreneurship, on innovation, on startups, Uh, actually most of the Outside funding for the Wyss Institute comes from the DOD uh, more than it does from NIH, uh, mm-hmm. and the focus, the metric of success is, uh, is really startups and spin-offs. Uh, HST has been a more traditional environment for bringing uh, engineers and, uh, and clinicians together. Um, in our department, uh, we've had a, a number of different initiatives uh, where we've tried to sort of cross this uh, divide. Uh, we brought people from industry into our department in a center for drug discovery, Mm -hmm. uh, individuals who've been leaders in drug discovery and chemistry and pharma, Uh, because many um, either clinician investigators or PhD investigators are fundamentally interested uh, in drug development or device development, but you know if they haven't spent time in pharma or don't have the connections aren't, you know, can use some guidance in terms of, you know, how far to push in one direction or where the data package needs to be stronger than another when it's time to sort of spin it out or hold it back in. Uh, It's not about another line on a CV, it's really about having an impact in the life of a patient. Another uh, strategy that we've done just this uh, year is a program we call Harvard SPIN, Surgical Program and Innovation, Mm -hmm. and that's actually directed at current existing surgical residents in our program. The vast majority of surgical residents don't have an engineering background. There are a few that do, maybe as an undergrad, and an occasional MD-PhD student will have, but most don't. And so the question is, how do you lower the barrier for engagement of clinicians, of surgical residents, in this process of problem finding and problem solving? Uh, So this is a program that uh, Incorporates 15 residents uh, from the PGY uh, 2 through the PGY 4 year. Uh, it meets uh, once a month uh, for five months, beginning in February and extending to this June. There's a website that you can uh, you can uh, look at the program. Uh, the program initially started with a mini hackathon. So uh, hackathons are when you're hacking things. So um, Trying to solve a problem, we think about it in the context of computer code. But uh, our first hackathon was uh, gave a problem uh, to the surgical residents about uh, designing a better chest tube, hacking the chest tube. You know, it's interesting because when you then ask residents, "So what's this problem?" You know, with chest tubes, some said, "Well, we don't have a chest tube kit, so we actually spend a lot of time running around <laughs> collecting everything." Others talked about the. Obese patient, the patient with a very high BMI, and you know concerns about um, you know potentially injuring themselves and putting in a chest tube. Or how do you facilitate it? You know, other problems we gave them was what happens if you're in a low resource environment where you don't have any drug, mm-hmm. uh, don't have any gloves. How would you put in a chest tube if you didn't have any gloves, or if the patients had a very high you know incidence of HIV You know, uh, positive Mm -hmm. status. When you create these constraints, or if you were on a Mars mission and you had to spend, you know, two years in space and you needed to devise, develop a chest tube kit for use on the space station or in a Mars mission, how would that sort of change your thoughts about the development of a chest tube? So, this mini hackathon was to give residents, we broke them up into teams of three, so there Mm -hmm. are five teams of three, Uh, challenge them to sort of You know, try to hack it, uh, think about sort of how you would prototype it. And it was all really within, uh, you know, a a very short time period of, you know, a 60 or 90 minute block. The next sessions are focused on computer aided design. Sessions after that on 3D printing and prototyping. You know, again, just to provide them with skill sets. You know, I think uh, 10 or 20 years from now, that's all going to be anachronistic because. You know, now we're in an era where our children tell us, uh, mom, this is how Twitter works mm-hmm, dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 years from now, kids are gonna say, why are you going to the store to buy this? Let me 3D print it for you. Mm-hmm. So, but again, I think in the interim, it's providing residents with some um, skills, but also sort of lowering the barriers that may exist, whether it's practical barriers or conceptual barriers, mm-hmm. to sort of engaging with people who come from very, very different disciplines and actually to sort of promote the notion that the problems are around us. And we can get very focused as surgeons on um, learning our algorithms, learning the clinical decision-making, being compassionate, caring, outstanding master surgeons, which is really first and foremost. Uh, But I think whether you're training to be uh, a surgeon at Methodist, or in Boston or elsewhere around the country. We're trying to produce the future leaders in American medicine who solve the problems that currently face us today. So I think trying to do a better job for both engineers as well as for those who don't come from an engineering background to to really sort of be better engaged problem finders and problem solvers I think is an important component. It's not, I guess, what I would say is we talk in residency training about competencies, core competencies, professionalism, core medical knowledge, understanding system level change. The missing core competency is creativity and innovation. I think that that's really a critical component for thinking about the next generation of surgical education or medical education in general.
4: Well stated. Can't really add to that. So so let me change tacks and talk a little bit about um, our fellowship and our time at Emory, both as fellows and faculty. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about Bob Smith, and just uh, I know from a personal standpoint, and I'm gonna be able to deliver that to him, what it meant to me. Can you say a little bit about your time at Emory and, and
3: Bob's role and who you are today? Yeah, I've had, I think both of us have had, you know, the the good fortune of having a lot of wonderful mentors in our career, and I think we continue to have mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bob was in a very unique category, and continues to be in a unique category. Um, as that you know, individual who uh, was a master surgeon, a caring, compassionate clinician, uh, was somebody who could always uh, solve problems with Equanimity and grace even the most challenging problems um, that would otherwise generate um, high levels of emotion Bob was always able to approach it in a manner uh, where everyone around the table you know could uh, could approach it in a way um, where the best solution was identified I think I think I do, and I'm sure you do, you know, when we're faced in a difficult situation, you know, probably continue to say to ourselves, how would Bob handle this mm-hmm. problem? Uh, and I think when we think about that, you know, the first thing we would do is say to ourselves, okay, take a deep breath. Don't send that email. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and really try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. I think um, we all try to aspire to be good leaders and to surround ourselves by good leaders. And I think uh, Bob had the unique capacity to um, ensure that everybody had a voice, that um, he heard what people had to say uh, and listened very deeply. Uh, He could articulate the criteria for making a decision. Uh, everybody understood it, and as a consequence, always respected the decisions uh, that he made. He really surrounded himself by uh, by outstanding individuals. He brought out the best in people. He inspired us to work a little bit harder every day, uh, try a little bit harder, and to be fundamentally, at the end of the day, to be a good person. I think uh, Bob, I think, demonstrated. I think as well or better than anybody I've ever met in medicine, that it's all about a good heart and everything else follows.
4: Thank you very much. Great having you. Appreciate yeah, it.
3: Thank you. it.
0: We've heard some fascinating insights on how technological innovation can change clinical medicine and how multidisciplinary collaboration can be a powerful tool for problem solving. If you'd like to hear more from today's speakers, look for Debakey CV Education on YouTube. You can also watch our interviewees' grand round talks that take a deeper dive into these subjects discussed here today. And that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you want to follow us on social media, we are our at DeBakeyCVEDU on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll be back next week with more fascinating interviews. See you then.